0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the first proper episode of Musclit, and it's a cracker. If you are enjoying these conversations, if you like them, please like, subscribe, rate, review, whatever podcast app you're doing. It helps other people find the podcast. It pushes them up the charts. That's how the algorithm works. We have no ads, we have no sponsors, we rely entirely on you. Uh, I'm delighted that so many people have listened to the first episode and are excited about season one of what I think is an excellent, excellent project. If you can, here's the big ask, please join us. These podcasts don't produce themselves for free. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack and for the price of a fancy cup of coffee, you get access to them as quickly as I can turn them around. All the podcasts on the tortoiseshack platform, including lots of exclusives and they're entirely plea-free. So if you can, there's a link in the podcast you're listening to now. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Have a look at it and see if there's a level you're happy to keep these projects going. Thanks for listening, and I won't delay you any further. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Moose My name is Rosie Mead, and today I'm in conversation with Padraig Fogarty. Padraig is Campaigns Officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust. He's editor of Irish Wildlife magazine, and he's also the presenter of the Shaping New Mountains podcast, which is available on Spotify. In today's conversation, we are primarily focusing on Padraig's book Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, which was published in 2017, 2017. We discussed Podvick's motivations for writing Whittled Away and how it was informed by his activism and campaigning. Key issues covered in our conversation included Ireland's low density of environmental organisation, the extent and problems caused by exploitation of the seas and the EU common fishing policy, issues associated with the rollout of the EU Habitats Directive, what's wrong with the national parks and some more hopeful lessons from the burn about community engagement. We also talked about gaps in our knowledge about biodiversity and the scale of species loss in Ireland and some of the tensions involved in advocating for our biodiversity. The discussion concluded with Podrick's thoughts on rewilding, its meanings, prospects and possibilities and on what has changed in the five years since his book was published. Podrick, welcome. It's fabulous to have you here today and thank you very much for agreeing to participate in the musical cool series. I hope Love you enjoy the conversation. It, Thank you. Padraig, as I mentioned already, it's been five years since your book, Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, was published. So in this conversation, because it's, it's a substantial book, it's a substantial read, it's only really going to be possible for us to cover a fraction of the issues raised in the book. So I really want to say to anybody listening... Buy the book and read the book, okay? Just just do that, because I think there's a huge amount to be learned from, from engaging with it properly. But what I'm going to do today is maybe I'm just going to dip in, in some out of the key themes, and that might seem a little bit random. I hope it isn't and I hope the kind of trajectory I'm, I'm on might make some kind of sense. But maybe to go back to the beginning, I suppose, with the way, as I've said, it's extraordinarily detailed and I think at times dispiriting account of how our seas, waterways, skies, earth woodlands and other species of wildlife have been stripped of their diversity. And I suppose an awful lot has happened in the world since 2017. I guess a bit of an understatement to say that. But can you maybe take us back to before you wrote Whittled Away and why you felt a book like that was so necessary and so important and what motivated you to write the book and to make this kind of public statement, which is about really challenging our lackadaisical and, you know, negligent attitude towards wildlife and, and biodiversity?
2: Yeah, so thanks, Rosie. I mean, the the background really is that, I mean, I I studied, uh, broadly speaking, environmental science uh, uh, as a graduate and... um uh as part of that i got into uh i got involved with the ngo sector specifically the irish wildlife trust i started off as a volunteer but later as anyone who's involved in these organizations know if you put your hand up in a meeting you will get a job and you will get uh, sucked in so by the end of the 2000s i was uh, chairman of the iwt and i did a four year stint and we started working on a lot of um campaign issues. And a lot of these issues I hadn't learned about in college uh, because, you know, they're mostly kind of policy issues in, in, in mm-hmm. university. You learn about, you know, science and methodologies and so on, but you rarely learn about policies or maybe the psychology behind why uh, these things are happening. So I had been doing a lot of work on agriculture uh uh fishing uh had been totally new to me at that stage uh i knew that overfishing was a thing but i really didn't know about you know how industrial fishing works in ireland or the european union uh we were working on our national parks and you know asking questions about why are our national parks you know in such bad condition and um and we weren't alone, by the way. I mean, there was lots of other NGOs working on these issues as well. But then, if you remember, uh, we had our economic crash uh, at the end of the 2000s. And then uh, in response to that, uh, board Bia, uh, who's, which is the Irish uh, government body that, that advertises and markets Irish food and drink, uh, came up with this advertising campaign called Origin Green. And... Um, I remember sitting there watching that ad for Origin Green at the time, and it painted a picture of Ireland that I just didn't recognise. It was that all is wonderful, our seas are abundant with fish, you know, we are just innately a sustainable society. And if we can only get that message out there, we'll sell more food and more drink. And I was absolutely horrified by it. and. Um, and and that kind of led me into uh this this uh, idea i suppose that i felt that well, people don't really realize what has happened to our country people obviously tend to buy into marketing i mean marketing works uh it doesn't make us particularly gullible if we if we believe what we hear in in advertising and so on but um, but i really felt that there was a very low level of knowledge about Uh, How agriculture had affected our country, how water pollution, uh, some of this very historic, by the way, uh, the degradation of our bogs, just how much extinction Ireland has already experienced. And I suppose because a lot of it was out of human memory. people didn't know about it and obviously you don't miss something that you, you never even knew it was there in the first place. Um, so that's really what prompted me to write the book. And of course, when I started writing it, I realised that there was an awful lot I didn't know myself, so um, it kind of led me down various uh, avenues of research um, about, uh, about peatlands and agriculture and so on. But basically, that's what, uh, what brought me to write the book.
1: Great. Like what you say there is really interesting as well about how by virtue of being involved as an activist and a campaigner, you actually learn, you learn through that. Do You know, know, like, so there's a kind of a, like being involved in campaigning is sort of an educational experience in itself and it kind of feeds the campaigning activity. And one of the points that you make in the book, which I was actually quite surprised at because I'm very interested in community activism and community development and those kind of that side of like in social movements, And you talk about how in Ireland, comparatively speaking, that we have kind of a low level of participation in environmental organizations and groups and campaigning groups. So when you compare us, for example, to Britain or the north of Ireland, you know, we we don't really measure up in terms of kind of density of that organization. And what do you think is going on with that? That, On on the other hand, because you also say that when people are surveyed in Ireland about What do we think about nature? What do we feel about the environment? We tend to register, you know, positive views, affection, love, nostalgia, all these type of things. What do you think is the mismatch there between on the one hand is affection for nature, but on the other hand, a kind of an unwillingness to get involved in the necessary politics of doing something about it?
2: Yeah, there's a PhD in this uh, or a book all by itself, I imagine. and I suppose uh, Ireland, obviously, we've we have a colonial history, and we've a very different relationship to land than, let's say, that exists in the in the UK. And maybe that has something to do with it. People feel a very unique attachment to land. Maybe that's a, that's not uniquely Irish, but um, but certainly the pattern of land ownership and our history of land ownership in Ireland is very different. So, um, I I don't think it's necessarily that Irish people, uh, uh you know, feel more hostile to nature than. And british people for instance i don't but um but certainly from uh, an institutional point of view the uh, the the ngos for instance in the uk are are just on a, on a different level to those that exist in ireland um and i think coupled with that has been the sense that uh uh the environment is a luxury and Really, what we need is economic development, we need jobs, we need investment in rural areas in particular, and we just we just can't be nostalgic or, or romantic about having you know environmental protection getting in the way of that so that has led us i suppose to the situation today where we have we have very good and very active NGOs in Ireland. But they tend to be very poor, they're very uh, under-resourced, not particularly well staffed in, num- in terms of numbers, even though the, the people who work for them are very highly qualified. Um, and this um, duality between you know, the bloody NGOs are at it again and objecting to everything and uh, you know and don't understand uh, rural life. So the, the, the relationship with NGOs can be quite hostile when we're up against, let's say, the agricultural lobby, most, most obviously obviously, I suppose, but also other other lobbies. Um, but then you can contrast that with what has happened in the UK, where you've got, you know, some of the biggest civil organisations in the UK are environmental NGOs, I'm thinking of the RSPB. And yet I, I can't tell you that the state of nature in Britain is any better than that in Ireland, so uh, or or in any other country for that matter. I mean, every country is now knee deep in the climate and extinction emergency. And, I, you know, there are one or two that stand out, but generally you know, I can't say that. You know, there's, that many have d- done an awful lot better than we have, um, but obviously we've got here from a very different place uh, to other countries, and you know, maybe we'll get out of it in a very different way to other countries as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, that's that's important to acknowledge that presence of organisations and movements isn't a guarantee of success, but possibly it does measure the extent to which people are willing to become active. Do you mean, you know, and to sort of maybe even puncture the kind of the advert that you talked about there, that kind of illusion that things are actually okay. Do you mean the presence of organisations at least points to the fact that that might not be the case? Do you mean that there is something else going on here? So it may be suggestive.
2: There's also, if I may, the um, I I was uh, uh, a judge for the Tidy Towns contest uh, for a decade and so I visited, you know, nearly every town and village in Ireland and environmental sustainability is at the heart of the Tidy Towns contest. Um, But yes, you see, the the very big problems we have in Ireland are generally related to land use policies, agriculture, uh, fishing, let's say the OPWs, river drainage schemes. These are not things that are particularly accessible to communities to change. And you know, I can perfectly understand if you're a volunteer in your local village, you don't want to be taking on uh, or, or be seen to be taking on the farmers in your area, you know, that's just not going to happen. Uh, you, want to, you want to do something that's positive for your community. You don't want to be, you know, leading what even per, on, on the surface might be seen as a divisive campaign. And so we're back to, I think you made a point there about democracy and, um, and how our democracy works. I mean, an awful lot of these policy issues are, are developed by very small numbers of people uh, with very little scrutiny or accountability when things go wrong. Um, and so, you know, that can be very disempowering to people, particularly local communities who are very active on the ground for environmental reasons, seeing the pollution of their local river, seeing the disappearance of insects, for instance, in the fields around them, uh, because they don't know how to access the system, they don't know how they can be useful, or, or, or you know, because it, the bureaucracy can be uh, impenetrable.
1: Mind blowing, yeah, absolutely, and I think that is. I mean, and that point about. You know, wanting to make positive contributions and not necessarily get involved with conflict. Do you know what I mean? You know, I can, I can, I mean, I can understand when people are living in communities that you know you don't want to necessarily walk into a political standoff with another grouping in the locality. Um, Patrick, maybe can we can get into some of the kind of the more specific kind of issues, and we'll we kind of may come back to the kind of most, those more general concerns as, as we're talking through them, but. I suppose one of the things the book I thought was really interesting because I, I didn't know anything about it um, was to t- how you talk about the seas and what's been happening in the seas. And you kind of describe a scenario of like boom and bust in the seas, to be honest, whereby there are particular species of fish almost become all the rage and are overfished to the point of extinction and then sort of just move on to something else. And there seems to be this kind of presumption that the seas will always be there and they will always provide something for us. Um, But you actually list, and I think it's about 19 different species, which include Atlantic salmon, cod, spur dog, a fish I'd never actually heard of, um, whose status has ranged from the endangered to the vulnerable. And and you can shift around in those positions at various times, but there's a policy context here, of course. And the policy context is that since 1982, Irish fishing policy in the seas has been kind of like overseen and governed via the European Union's common fishing policy. Um, and you're quite critical of that policy. You think it has failed to ensure that stocks are managed in economically, socially, and crucially, environmentally sustainable ways. Maybe you could talk us just through some of those again for people who may not be so familiar with the context like what are the issues with the EU common fishing policy as you see it from a biodiversity perspective and how are they impacting negatively on the kind of the biodiversity of the seas around us.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the sea, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, for a lot of Irish people, the sea is something we see every day, or at least we see quite frequently. But we know very little about it uh, or how it's used. Uh, And that's largely because what happens out there is invisible. Uh, We don't know. We can't see into the water, unfortunately. And um, when boats go off beyond the horizon with their fishing nets, we don't don't know what they're doing and uh, we don't know what's happening. Uh, And that... Uh, that that history of interaction with the sea is is very old. It's it's ancient, actually. I mean, you know, the first settlers who came to Ireland would have survived mostly on uh, seafood and, and shellfish. Um, but then gradually the the seas started to become enclosed. Now this it predates the Common Fisheries Policy um because you can go back to to uh uh you know the 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 15th and 16th centuries and you know spanish boats and french boats and belgian boats were coming to ireland to fish and there was really really nothing that anybody could do to stop them there was no laws or regulations around that but then we saw uh measures from the united nations uh for states to create what are called um exclusive economic zones and we've we've gradually seen the enclosure of the sea uh, and the uh, the common fisheries policy was part of that so this was um as you say b- back in the early 1980s when uh, uh it was decided among the EU countries that uh because most of them had been fishing everywhere anyway that um they they would manage the sea in a in in a communal way hence a common policy um But, um, and I suppose that in one way that has led to the the narrative that we hear all the time from the fishing industry that look, it's the French and the Spanish that are stealing all our fish um, and the Irish, you know, get hardly anything. So Ireland did very badly, uh, negotiated a very poor deal back in the 90s in terms of the share of the fish that has been removed from the sea. But of course, the fish really couldn't care less uh, what language the crew are speaking when they're being hauled out of the sea. So from an environmental point of view, really, uh, you know, my concern is, is not who's catching it. It's, it's how much is being ca- caught and how it's being caught. And, and as, you, as you, you say as well, and, and I suppose we're prisoners of the language we use around this, fish and marine wildlife have only ever really been seen as stocks as you know economic units that have been out there to be utilized by whoever can do it in the most efficient way and of course marine uh, 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 ecosystems are incredibly complex uh you know we, we know very little about them uh, but um, they've been divided up into, into these stocks, which are very small in number, actually. You know, when you consider the thousands of species that live in the sea, uh, we exploit commercially very few of them. Uh, but also, as you point out, one by one, they have become overexploited. And again, that predates the, the common fisheries policy. I was, when I was researching my book, you know, you could find stories from, you know, West Cork where the Pilchards, were completely over overexploited uh, by boats from a number of nations and um, using no what we wouldn't describe today as industrial techniques, but they were big boats and they were big nets and everything. And there was a lot of people. It was very labour intensive. So overfishing has a very long history. The other thing that has a long history is bottom trawling. This is a way of catching fish that became very popular. In the 18th century, in the sorry, in the 19th century, when you could start putting uh, coal-fired burners onto boats, uh, steam engines basically, um, in order to catch fish, because it was immensely productive. Now, bottom trawling, if you're not familiar with it, is. You go out to sea, you you throw your net out, but it 's weighed onto the bottom, uh, typically with a with a large iron bar and uh, and you drag the net across the bottom of the sea and it catches everything and In the early days when the sea was completely abundant, um, i mean you didn 't have to drag the net very far to fill it full of fish. And this was incredible innovation at the time, because boats that would have spent, you know, days out to sea filling their nets, found that the same amount of fish could be caught in a matter of hours. Uh, But interestingly, and again, this is well before the the, the European Union even existed, um, you know, the smaller boats could see what was happening they could see the destruction that this was causing and there were actually very violent protests uh, at times particularly around say galway bay where there was there were hundreds of of fishermen and thousands of people employed in fishing just around galway bay Uh, but of course it was very it was impossible for the states to enforce the regulations and to to control the boats again there were boats coming in from Scotland and uh, other parts of Ireland, they would turn up in the morning and should they be gone before anybody uh, could do anything about it. So even though there were attempts to ban bottom trawling in bays and estuaries in in the 1800s, Uh, Ultimately they all failed and basically the government said okay well we can't fight it and of course the the people in the small fishing boats were portrayed as you know anti-development and uh, you know uh, not willing to embrace new technology and uh, and so we saw just this mad scramble to bottom trawl absolutely everywhere which continues to this day but of course because the fish aren't there anymore you have to trawl for an awful lot longer in order to fill the nets And of course, a lot of the time, uh, it's actually one of the great uh, tragic ironies of uh, fishing in Ireland is that the great um, wealth in uh, fishing today is not in fish, it's in uh, prawns. Which are dragged off the bottom of the sea, because the fish that you know certainly I used to eat when I was growing up, like cod and whiting and place, just aren't there in, in any abundance anymore. They're not they're not commercially valuable anymore. They're relegated to what's called commercial extinction, and nobody really cares about them. Uh, so the boats kind of now depend on a fossil fuel intensive, ecologically destructive uh, mode of fishing in order to make any money. The other big fish that uh, earns a, a lot of money in Ireland is uh, blue whiting and a lot of people will be thinking well I've never seen blue whiting on a restaurant menu and I've never seen blue whiting when I go to the supermarket and that's because blue whiting is not a particularly uh, uh, attractive fish from a culinary point of view But you can ground it up into powder and dry it and create pellets out of it and uh this is called fish meal and it can be sent off to feed pets and livestock and farmed salmon and this is an absolute travesty really that we're going out turning uh wildlife into commodity items just to feed other non-sustainable industries and basically that's what's happened across the 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 seas and um and just, John, finally, I mean, we, we've uh, the common fisheries policy has been disastrous because it has compla- failed completely to restrain the fishing industry. Um, and, uh, and, and to, I mean, you know, the, the NGOs are, are just completely hoarse trying to get governments, the member states in particular, to adhere to the science uh, on how much fish to catch and, and you know, how much not to, to leave alone. Uh, and of course th- that ignoring of science has led to the disastrous situation we have today where 80% of the fishing boats in Ireland are small boats still, but they're not catching any fish. Uh, they're reliant on crabs and lobsters, which is completely unregulated. So really what has happened is that we've, we've, we've given this, the riches of the sea to private operators for free basically they don't uh, pay anything for for the fish that they catch or the marine organisms they catch and in fact it's the opposite we we lavish uh, the industry with public subsidies whether that's for fuel or for research or for for changing gears or whatever at the moment we're giving them 60 million euro just to uh, tie up boats and uh, you know Decommission them. So really what, what we've done to the sea is insane by any measure, uh, considering how vastly important the ocean is for climate and biodiversity and for the, the other many benefits that we get from the sea.
1: Yeah. And so what you're describing there, Paul I think is like there's willful ignorance, there's sort of, you know, actively destructive behaviour. But there's also, to use a hideous term, kind of collateral damage of a really extreme kind of level, because I presume when those trawlers dredge along, I mean, Everything gets pulled up, you know, it's destroyed, it's dislocated, and that's the end of it. And all because everything has been. So this kind of like vicious circle of the way that the overfishing and the overexploitation, you know, means you need to go further and deeper in order to try and compensate for your loss with the kind of destruction for smaller fishing lifestyles along the way. And I suppose it's 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 a grim, it's a really, really grim and um and dispiriting account, I think. But I think in the book as well, you do signal that there are possibilities of thinking about this different way and that maybe in other con- in other countries, for example, Norway, you talk a little bit about they've done some things there to maybe, you know, mitigate the effects of this or to at least try to begin a different kind of conversations around the relationship with the sea. Do, do you want to say anything about that? What you've been seeing maybe that, you know, is working better in other contexts? Because my understanding is that you think it's not just about protecting what we have, We've actually got to move towards, like you know, restoring what has been lost. Do you mean you know, like it's so it's not enough to halt the kind of misery that's going on now. We need to to kind of you know, like to, to push back against it and actually succeed in restoring it. And that maybe some other context that you know some good work has been done around this.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and the. the I suppose where we've always ground to a halt in this debate is uh, when it comes to taking the radical action that's needed to, 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 to restore the health of the ocean, because that will require short-term pain uh, by the fishing boat. And, and you mentioned uh, Norway, and I talked about Norway in, in my book, because Norway took a very different path from the European Union. They decided, look, cod are actually a much higher value fish, and if you let them grow to be bigger they become higher value again. Big cod are much more valuable than smaller cod. And also it's, uh, it's a quirk of the biological world that in fish, the older a female gets, the more productive she gets, the more f- uh, eggs she produces. And large, old female fish uh, produce millions and millions of, uh, of offspring. Uh, and so preserving that cohort Uh, is key to uh, the next generation and to ensuring the health. So the Norwegian government took very strict action. They told the fishermen, look, this isn't going to continue. Uh, We're going to tie up your boats. We'll support you while you're being tied up. But uh, we're going to give the sea a rest. And we're going to allow that productivity to recover. And then when we go back in, we're going to manage things much differently. We're going to have strict strictly enforced quotas and and so on. Um whereas the European Union never went down that road. They never just they, they they never stood up to the fishing industry or the individual member states to say that um uh we're going to we're going to take the short term pain in order for for that recovery to happen. So we've just gone down and down and down into this uh into this spiral. Um but on the other hand, I mean the we have many knotty problems around you know, dealing with our environmental uh, uh, predicament. Uh, protecting the ocean is not one of them. It's possibly the easiest, fastest thing we could do to protect biodiversity and even uh, protect, uh, protect us from the impacts of climate change uh, is to stop fishing is to stop industrial fishing over very large areas. Create, basically what I'm saying is marine protected areas where no extractive activities are allowed. And um, and the marine life will bounce back. I mean, we, we know that, let's say, we're very used to the idea of trees capturing carbon, but actually marine life captures uh, an awful lot of carbon as well. And studies have been done on this about, let's say the effects of, uh, of healthy whale populations on carbon. And they actually transfer carbon through their, through their their poo uh, to the bottom of the sea where it's sequestered and stored forever. So there, there's a, there's there's enormous benefit to uh, to protecting the ocean. Unfortunately in Ireland we're not seeing any signs whatsoever that that is happening. Um, we have protected about two point one. Percent of our sea. Actually, I'm using the wrong word there. We have designated 2.1 percent of our seas uh, for protection, and we call these protected areas. But they're not protected because we're not taking any measures in them really um, uh, to to provide protection. And this is a this is a miserable level, even by global standards, where. You know, a lot of countries have already reached targets of 30% and more of designating uh, marine protected areas. And the European Union has been quite poor because, you know, again, we're not seeing much protection in those areas. But we can look to places like uh, Mexico and the Philippines and the United States where they really have taken marine protection seriously. And where you stop the fishing, where you stop the damaging activity, you know, surprise, surprise, the fish... The fish go on to recover and the marine life uh, bounces back, sometimes by many hundreds of percent within three or four years. So, uh, so I really think that, that if, we, if we're looking for quick wins in the climate and biodiversity crisis, protecting the ocean has to be top of the list.
1: And and it strikes me, I mean, again, I'm I'm very interested in this this kind of whole area of kind of a community consultation and community participation, but it sounds to me like there needs to be a separation out of different interests as well, you know, that there's massive commercial interests and then there's, you know, like smaller scale, you know, and how do we consult with people in, you know, rural fishing communities, for example, about the possibility of a future, you know, where they can have faith in the state and faith in public policy to kind of... You know, allow them to live, do you mean to have a lifestyle? And, but what I think sometimes in the debate, all of these different interests get collapsed into one single thing, so that there's a fishing lobby. But that, but there isn't. There's, there's different interests within that idea of a lobby, I think. Or maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my sense from what you're saying is that there's multiple interests, or we need to start separating them out because they're not harmful in the same way, and aspects of some might be more valuable in terms of environmental and social sustainability than others.
2: Yes, you're right. Um, there is no there is no voice for the fishing community in Ireland. Put it that way. There are many voices, and um, and uh, yes, what what has happened really is that the value, the monetary value, has shrunk into a very small number of, of boats, really, and a small number of hands. Um, and then, of course, the majority of fishing boats, as I know as I mentioned earlier, are are small. You know, low impact uh, boats but uh, but because they don't carry the economic heft, they haven't managed really to get their voice heard at the at the table. Um, whereas the fishing industry, you know the, where the value is, is very well connected across the European Union and um, and has the year. and of course, this, Uh, is also tied in with this strange connection between fishing and nationalism and we saw this during brexit you know with fishing boats going up the thames waving flags we see it in ireland all the time as well you know that um protecting our fishing fleet uh is part of our of our uh national uh identity and our national boundary and we must you know the the ocean is ours and uh, the fish are ours and we can't allow foreigners to be taking it away and so a lot of people latch on to that and of course coupled with the fact that you know the knowledge and understanding of what's happening at sea is really very very low i mean if it's if it's low for environmental issues generally it's it's absolutely rock bottom when it comes to the sea very few people have have any kind of understanding there's very little communication of it Um So that, that, those, those issues have combined to basically allow the, the scale of destruction uh, that we have seen uh, and, and unfortunately you're right there's going to have to be some kind of a rupture along the way um, but I don't see it happening I don't see the state stepping in to play that leadership role that only it can play in terms of uh, a just transition for those who are affected in terms of designing a new system for protecting the ocean while you know I think we could have um, Uh, a fantastic small-scale commercial fishing sector that was completely compatible with uh, protecting the ocean. But I just don't see anybody at a political level advocating for it or um, and remembered like the, 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 the entire scientific uh, body has been designed around the exploitation of marine resources and this follows the money so the scientific questions are not being asked about how do we you know protect small areas and develop small-scale economies it's all about how can we get more at scale and convert that into money as soon as possible
1: yeah yeah that 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 kind of issue there that you refer to um in return to the kind of politicization of these issues the sort of problematic politicization it also i think emerges in relation to the european habitat t- directive and you raise some very interesting points about that in the book and you talk i mean i suppose under the European Habitat Directive, and you, you might explain that to us in a, in a minute. Um, there are special areas of conservation and special protection areas, and there are certain obligations associated with that. And for example, when you talked about the sea, you, you kind of said we protect, and then you sort of changed that we're sort of supposed to protect, you know. So there's kind of question marks about the extent to which we comply with the kind of obligations that we have. But one of the things you say is that there's a really strong tendency for those kind of responsibilities and that stewardship to be constructed as a burden that's imposed from outside. You know, like, look at what they're making us do now. I hate to say this, but we have to do it otherwise. This kind of negative construction on it always. Um, And I think that to me, it's that's always presenting that tendency to present it as this is gonna hurt, and it's being made. But we're being made to do it. Kind of reinforces the sort of kind of like the paralysis that you're actually describing about. So maybe we do talk a little bit about that. I suppose first of all, maybe what that Heritage Directive is and how it has been negatively politicized in that in that type of way.
2: Yes. So the the history of this is quite interesting because. Um The idea of protecting areas for nature, uh, uh, arguably it goes back to, you know, the 1800s when the United States started creating national parks. Um, Originally, of course, they weren't about really, you know, biodiversity as we think of it today. They were about protecting landscapes which were linked to identity. And very, and very much a colonial idea as well. You, 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 it's kind of hard actually to separate that out from the history of uh, conserv- nature conservation and protected areas. But the value for national parks became apparent in the early 1900s for also protecting uh, biodiversity and so they they started to expand and ireland was was part of that we um we in our first national park goes back was killarney national park i think it goes back to the 1970s it was gifted to the state and it's still one of the most important biodiversity areas we have but um but uh in the 1970s uh you know before well we we had joined the european union at that stage but there was a sense that uh the irish state was going to step up to this challenge and uh we deployed scientists and ecologists across the country to identify where needs to be protected where are our most important areas for biodiversity and these areas would then form part of our of our national network for protected areas at the time they were called areas of scientific interest which um isn't a very great title if you're looking for inspiration from the natural world Uh, and really you know and and again we'll come back to our language that we use around these areas it really isn't up to the task half the time because uh, uh, anyway that's possibly another discussion but um, but then in the uh, the early 1990s the European Union came up with the habitats directive and this. Uh, this uh, placed an onus on member states to identify, it was very technical, it was very scientific, there were long lists of species and habitats that most lay people would not be able to read to be honest and uh, there was an onus on each member state to identify uh, areas where these species and habitats existed and to put them into what were called special areas of conservation. Now they weren't national parks uh, and they were very clear about that, that these were areas were not about excluding human activity, but they were about making sure that whatever human activity was going on would allow for those special features to be retained and protected and restored if uh, if needs be. But I think what happened then was that national politicians felt, okay, well, this isn't our job anymore. This is the job of the European Union, and this is Brussels. So there was a sense, I think, of dispossession at the time. And from during the 1990s, we heard less speeches from uh, politicians about the importance of our national heritage and about this. That whole body of work that went into identifying the areas of scientific interest fell by the wayside, more or less. Um, and as you say, it became a burden, it became a task that had to be done. And uh, it it um, it didn't involve local people. And again, actually, there there was a strong residue of colonialism in it, in how lines on maps were drawn by people in uh, offices and you know bureaucracies in Dublin. Letters went out to farmers telling them their land has been designated as a special area of conservation under directive number this, this and this, because you might have uh, orchid-rich grassland, habitat code, this, 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 gobbledygook to farmers, who may or may not even have read the letter. And then they're discovering, hang on, my land is in a special area of conservation, what does that mean? And they were given a list of things that they weren't allowed to do. You're not allowed to drain the land. You're not allowed to uh, uh, fence it. If, you're, if it was a commonage area, you weren't allowed to put up fences. And all of a sudden, you can imagine the reaction uh, that you know farmers and landowners have had. And basically, that hasn't been reversed. That's, uh, there, we, we have, we're, we're starting to get around it. In so far as the last couple of years, we have seen projects that have involved actual human beings going out to farmers and talking to them about why their land is important, why it was designated. And, you know, let's have a conversation about what are the things we can do to uh, protect the features. That, that should have happened in the early 1990s, but it didn't. And the residue of that is that if you mention land designation to a farmer, you can see the shutters coming down immediately. All they can think of is that you're going to sterilize my land. Uh, this is bad news. And um, and so so we have, it's very relevant today because there's a global movement now to protect 30% of land and sea by, by the end of this decade. At the moment, about 12% of Ireland falls within these special areas of conservation. And other there's another designation called Special Protection Area for Birds. Um, and we need to double that, or at least we should be trying to double it. But it's very hard when, you know, uh, we haven't basically decolonized our, our nature conservation uh, methodologies. Um, I think it's something we should be doing. But we, we need to be having a much broader, deeper conversation about how do we live with the land and how do we, you know, meet the aims of these directives, which are still very important, uh, without dispossessing people and disenfranchising them.
1: Mm. I mean I I am I'm, I'm more familiar with areas of social policy and but I mean this is this comes up has come up a lot and repeatedly whereby policy being you know constructed at a distance do you know, I mean? you know without consultation with people who are affected do you know, I mean? you know and the kind of gaps and the inadequacies occur with that but also the kind of residues of bad faith that are left do you know, I mean? you know and get in the way of progress into the future so it it really does matter how this thing is perceived do you know I mean? you know and how and I'm sure it feeds into some of the kind of current conversation about climate change and what can be done you know particularly among farmers to kind of like mitigate the effects of that the kind of sense of bad faith and the kind of feelings of you know dispossession you know um so i mean obviously that there are, there are very deep resonances in terms of that that approach um you in, in the course of that discussion there you also made reference to the to the to the national parks and a substantial portion of the book is actually given over to looking at the national parks. I think it's the longest chapter in your book, and there are different sections in it. And you focus on um, Killarney, Wicklow Mountains, Glenvey, Connemara, the Burren national parks. And to be honest, I actually found that chapter in some ways kind of the most shocking because I think because I'm familiar, for example, with with, with Killarney National Park and the Burren. You know, which actually fare better than the others. To be honest, to mean you know? But I suppose many people like me, the, un, 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 you know, ill-informed or the uninitiated would have assumed that, OK, here at least, you know, there may be serious problems in terms of biodiversity protection elsewhere. But here at least there is some kind of, you know, sanctity and safety for biodiversity. But that's really not the case. And and actually, you catalogue a lot of issues, um, you know, in Glenve, in Connemara, in Wicklow Mountains, you know, Overgrazing by sheep being kind of, a, you know, occurring as a kind of a significant issue, burnings, you know, but also just the sheer lack of infrastructure and kind of staff to even support and maintain them. So I suppose we, we'd like to hear your talk a bit about that, you know, like why do the national parks, A, why are they so important? And B, what needs to be done and what are the issues that you're seeing and what needs to be done to try and reverse the kind of neglect associated with them?
2: Yes, so believe it or not, national parks are part of our bi- are part of the problem of our biodiversity collapse, and uh, that might sound strange because certainly I grew up believing that national parks were the the refuges for for nature, and where you would go to see, you know, the wild uh, that didn't exist in the rest of the country. Um, but in a way, that that idea has allowed us to separate ourselves and human activity from the natural world. And it has allowed the perception to build up that, you know, should we have national parks? You know, we can do whatever we want, you know, everywhere else, uh, as long as we have our national parks. But I looked at our national parks in particular because they are... Completely state owned land, unlike in other countries that uh, have very big national parks that might be a patchwork of different land ownerships. Uh, in Ireland, our national parks are 100% state owned land. So we don't have the same uh, issues to deal with where we're trying to protect la- uh, biodiversity on private land, where you might have to deal with ma- sometimes many hundreds of landowners. Uh, surely this should be an easy thing to do because uh you know we know basically why they're important let's say the the ancient oak forest in Killarney and um and they get a lot of visitors but i think what um a couple of things happened uh number one the the, the national park idea basically was commandeered by the tourist industry and uh again it comes back to our, our greenwashing problem and uh they became part of the marketing sell for tourists visiting Ireland. So we see that particularly in Killarney, where any amount of money is available to renovate Muckross House, to put in cycle lanes, to improve car parks, all worthy things. But very little is available for actual conservation of the woodlands, uh, for controlling the, the and managing the deer population, for uh, controlling the sheep, for in- tro- controlling the invasive species. Now, why that is, is basically it's linked, I think, to the last conversation we had about disenfranchisement because what happened during the early 2000s uh, was when the European Union started getting quite strict on Ireland, taking us to court basically for not implementing uh, our habitats directive. Uh, uh, And then we had a green minister uh, in office in this area. It was around 2007. There was, there was. They decided we were, were going to actually implement this in relation to turf cutting. And there was a, an enormous, what we would call today a culture war in the countryside around turf cutting. And it was uh, here is the European Union trying to destroy our way of life. And it was basically then handed over to Fine Gael when the uh, Fianna Fáil Green Party government lost office in 2011. And uh, it was Jimmy Denehan, who was a Green Party minister, was charged with implementing this program to stop turf cutting on the t- very small numbers, about 53 uh, areas of, uh, of of bog in Ireland where turf cutting was to stop. And Jimmy Denehan in particular is an interesting character, a fine man, I'm sure, but he blamed this debate for losing his seat in Kerry. Uh, because he was, uh, he, he was part of a turf cutting family as many rural families are and this debate was completely poisonous. And so Fine Gael thereafter wanted nothing to do with uh, nature conservation and during the uh, austerity years the National Parks and Wildlife Service was defunded. They lost 70% even more perhaps of their non-staff budget. Uh, during that decade. And so that's why we had national parks that had no staff, we had areas that had no rangers, there was no money for doing anything, Uh, no management plans, uh, nothing. And at the same time then we had, uh, you know, this idea that our national parks can be engines for economic growth. That's actually a phrase I'm taking out of a government uh, press release. uh, engines for economic growth because they can attract tourists and they can be part of the uh, the, the the product sell. So a total divorce from. Nature from why we need nature, why we need to engage with nature and simultaneously a total defunding and crippling of the infrastructure that's needed to uh, to protect these areas. Uh, And we're only really kind of getting back on our feet now with the with the new government that's been in place for for the last two years.
1: I mean the story. I mean you've you've, you've summarised it really eloquently there. I think I mean like and 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 I think that people really should read the chapters because they really do give us an insight into the sort of and as you emphasise it's this is state land. So if we can't get it right in state land, do you mean you know like how much more complicated is it when we're dealing with lots of private interests and private owners? But you do suggest that, for example, when you discuss the burn, that there is some more hopeful evidence from there, or at least there was when you wrote the book in two thousand and seventeen. Do you mean you know that? Of like whereby there had been some attempts attempts to kind of reconcile the kind of protection and nurturance of biodiversity with local farming practices um, and that. Maybe there's something, you know, some lessons that we can learn from that, if not the exact practices, because I'm sure they vary depending on the landscape, but from the kind of processes of engagement. Do you want to talk about that? And, and are you still as hopeful about what you saw on the burn then? Uh, uh, you know, are you still as hopeful now about that?
2: Yes, yeah, so the Burren is a, is a really fascinating uh, landscape and and many people listening to this uh, might be familiar with with the Burren because it does look different. It's a very unique landscape in Ireland. And the story about uh the Burren today uh is also interesting because it was born out of an awful lot of conflict. Uh and again we were looking at this uh Uh, idea of you know economic expansion, uh, growth in uh, tourism, uh, you know lots of money being available for tourist projects but there was a cohort in the Burren who saw these plans as completely at odds with what they saw as special about the Burren and this was a difficult period in the local history there because you know, uh, neighbours don't want to be fighting with each other over these kinds of things. And uh, and, it, and it was bitter. Um, and um, ultimately, though, the the what you might call the conservation side of the argument won out. Basically, they wanted to build a very big visitor centre at, at Mullock Moor and, on one of the one of the main hills there in the Burren uh, and to, to kind of funnel in, you know, thousands of tourists on buses. Um, but those plans uh, failed. Now, fortunately, when out of failure, you know, rising from the ashes came, um, a, a wonderful local initiative, uh, to, to, uh, to, to be proactively protecting what was special about the burn, and the way they did it was uh, they it got help from European uh, the European Union uh, because of the designations that we were just talking about because they were special areas of conservation they were able to tap into European Union funds. Uh, And there was a local, uh, it was a local initiative and it worked with uh, scientists and ecologists in order to protect uh, the biodiversity, but also the archaeology and the other heritage features of the burn. And the reason it worked, they developed what uh, we call today in in policy parlance, a results based scheme. So uh, the farmers were given money, but they weren't just given money for ticking boxes. They were told, look, this is what we want out of the land as, <clears throat> as ecologists. We want um, clean water. We want uh, you know fields that are full of biodiversity, full of uh, special communities of orchids and different types of wildflowers. Uh, that's what we want. You're the farmer, you know your land. You know, you tell us how we can get that. And uh, if you have ideas, we'll explore those ideas. If you need funding for, let's say, putting uh, water troughs for cattle away from the stream so that they're not churning up the muck in the stream, we'll help you You know, find a supplier and we'll help you uh, with a contractor to install. All that, that kind of uh, day-to-day stuff, uh, going out, talking to the farmer, appreciating that the farmer has a a huge depth of knowledge about their land and trying to apply that knowledge to getting results that, you know, the rest of us want uh, in terms of uh, protection of biodiversity and and heritage. So what we saw with the Burren, crucially, was three legs to the stool. We saw the state support through the European Union, providing the funding, we saw the scientific backing so that we know that it's working uh, and we know we're getting results out of it and we saw the local support for it and they those three those three legs of the stool basically are the key to uh, conservation um you know, moving forward. And, uh, and that's the great lesson of the burn. And those three things can be applied anywhere, in a marine setting or in, in a dairy setting or whatever. Um, uh, but you might then ask, so why? So the burn that, that project is, is uh, 20 years old and is lauded internationally, but it's still more or less quite confined. Now, it's not quite as confined to the burn as it used to be even five years ago, but still it's a marginal model. So you might ask, well, why are we not doing this everywhere? if it were if it's so successful and then you're you're really into the economics of land use because the Burren doesn't produce huge quantities of milk powder. It doesn't produce huge quantities of beef. Um, it doesn't produce huge quantities of of uh, commodity items that can be sold by the likes of Bord when they do trade trips to Japan or the Middle East. Uh, so you're you're immediately into a uh, you know, where the economic power lies. And that is basically why we have seen the Burran project on the front of the brochures. Uh, But when you get down to the business, it's uh, intensive uh, dairy farming and environmental destruction elsewhere. So this is a problem for the Burran because Basically, it's being used as a, as a poster child, as a, as a fig leaf for the intensification elsewhere. But if you're looking for the good news story, certainly um, uh, it has been successful and those lessons can be applied uh, more broadly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the process is interesting and that the process is something that we can learn from. But we wouldn't want to get carried away by the illusion that this somehow kind of mitigates everything else that's been happening or not happening in terms of, of biodiversity. Um one of the things you, points you make in the book is that you reckon that it's estimated that about 115 species of plants and animal have been lost and know become extinct since humans are kind of first inhabited the island. Um, and, you know, but we also, that's really probably a gross underestimation. We just really do not know. But I suppose we do know that, like, Brown bears and corn buntings and crane and ospreys and capricolias and wildcats have been lost and a whole host of other, you know, non-glamorous kind of species as well. And then on the other hand, there has been some kind of restoration. So woodpeckers, spotted woodpeckers have kind of made a reappearance. And um, you also talk about the kind of return of eagles at various to various projects. But I think what you're really could of saying is that nonetheless, we just do not know, Jimmy, because we don't know what we have and we don't necessarily know what we're losing. So there is this real dearth of knowledge and information about like biodiversity in this in this country. And do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that? Like what? Why is that? Why do you think that we? Just don't have that kind of research knowledge and documentation. Why is it a low, such a low priority? Or, or is am I answering am I answering the question by just by asking it? Do you know? You know, <laughs> it's a low priority because it's a low priority. Um. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting into the, the kind of the, the really big
2: questions of uh, ecology here, and um, uh, I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have the quote in front of me. But I think Aldo Leopold uh, was a great American conservationist. He described it. As uh, playing chess with uh, a blindfold, uh, when you don't know your opponent, uh, and half the pieces on the board are missing, uh, and and this, I suppose, uh, tells us two things. Number one, healthy ecosystems. Uh, which you know we all might have some idea of what that might mean, but basically um, uh, uh, ecosystems that are self regulating without human interference, so healthy ecosystems um, are absolutely crucial to the stability of the earth, and you know healthy ecosystems uh, are inherently stable um, but in Ireland, we don't have any, and this is the problem. Um, we don't have any uh, healthy natural ecosystems. Uh, we, lo- you know, our forest was felled, you know, a long time ago, you know, at, at least a thousand years ago. You know, people like to think that the, the the British destroyed all our forests. The British destroyed what was left of our forests. Um, you know, many scholars think that possibly Ireland only had 10 percent of our land in, in forests, you know, when, you know, the the, the the british uh, colonized ireland um so we we don't know what a healthy ecosystem looks like uh we didn't have ecologists in the 10th century uh looking at you know the microbes and the birds and the the plant life and that's that's a real problem because um, if we're trying to reconstruct these ecosystems uh we're flying blind uh to a large extent we, I mean, there's still huge debate over what species were native in Ireland and, and were not native. And everything from wild boar to lynx to strawberry trees. Um, you will find there is debate among ecologists as to whether these plants and animals were naturally here or whether they were brought here by early settlers or traders, by monks, by, you know, whoever. Um, and then, of course, you go out to sea and um, we haven't a clue what a healthy ecosystem looks like out at sea, uh, because it is so completely altered, and and nothing has been protected or preserved over the years. So, um, so that is why uh, we 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 really haven't a clue uh, what what these things look like. But that is not a a, a, a you know a reason why we shouldn't be you know, trying to restore natural ecosystems. And of course, um, the climate is changing. What will be a natural ecosystem in the future probably won't look like what it did in the 10th century, for instance. Um, so this is where rewilding, I think, comes comes into its own because this is really a technique that accommodates our vast ignorance of uh, of nature, but also gives nature the agency and the power to figure it figure it out basically and figure bigger but i think we have to be looking at uh you know we know that we, we know for sure that certain species went missing or well I, I say went missing that we exterminated them um and and they they should they, they should be coming back because we know enough in in ecological science that species play vital roles in ecosystems and we all kind of know that intuitively, you know, if you take away the spiders, you'll have too many flies. Uh, you know, and, and everything plays its its role, even if we're not really sure what that role is. But um but uh restoring species that have gone extinct, I think, is is crucial. But also restoring the abundance of species that are now threatened with extinction is also crucial because in many places we have what you might call it county extinctions. So there are just large areas of the country where there's just very little uh, wildlife left, and you know we we can't we can't get into this corner where we think oh sure we're fine like the, the the corn crakes are doing okay in Donegal, uh, we don't need to do any more when we know that corn crakes used to be absolutely everywhere. I mean they were in Wexford and you know the the car park in UCD and uh, and now they're just pushed into these tiny corners.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, from what you're saying, I think as well in terms of the the kind of knowledge part of the discussion, like, obviously, there's the institutions um, and government and policymakers have huge responsibility here. And actually, I'll come back and talk a little bit about rewilding in, in a minute or two. But I mean, so, but there's this kind of like, obviously, the institutions play a crucial role. But also, I suppose, one of the things that's kind of been interesting in recent years has been the emergence of citizen science. Do you know, you know, whereby increasingly, um, you know, the absent store of knowledge, some of the gaps in that are being filled or being kind of like, are being at least mitigated in some ways by ordinary people, generally, you know, with enthusiasm and with energy and interest. How do you, how important do you think that kind of contribution is? I mean, does it, does it add something real to the kind of stock of knowledge or is it more that it actually contributes to a kind of a culture of care and a culture of kind of stewardship, that that's maybe more where its value is? Or... You know, do you have any kind of particular thoughts around that whole, you know, emergence of citizen science?
2: <clears throat> so it's it's very interesting to look at the role of science uh, in in this crisis in terms of the history and also the the, the future, because uh, science we tend to think of as kind of neutral, as just kind of you know shining a light on how things really are and um, and, and and just a reflection of reality, um, whereas really, where you shine the light is as crucial as anything else. And uh, I mentioned there, you know, we were talking about the sea, that the huge body of fishery science that has built up over the last century has not been about, you know, how do marine ecosystems work? You know, what is living under the sea? How are these creatures interacting with each other? It has been about how can we get the fish out of the sea, how can we exploit it as a resource? And so an awful lot of our science uh, has been directed in that way. And maybe that is also why at the moment science is really failing us. Uh, And I'll give you an example. When I was in uh, third class in primary school, we had a wormery. You know, one of these, uh, it was an old fish tank that we We put uh, soil and leaves and different things and we put worms in it. And over the weeks, we watched how the the worms churned up the soil. And it was a fantastic experiment. So the role that worms play in healthy soil ecosystems, you know, is pretty much, you know, it's it's, uh, everybody knows that worms are really important. Yet if you go and try and find a scientific paper on the role of worms in Irish soil, I mean best to look to you uh, I haven't been able to find one uh, there's no information about the diversity of of earthworms like there it's not just one species there are many different types of earthworms uh how many species exist in Ireland? what is their conservation status what role do they play these these questions haven't Haven't been asked because the agricultural system has basically decided we're not about biology, we're about chemistry and uh, inputs and outputs from a commercial uh, perspective. Uh, So that's I think I think that's a really crucial uh, thing that we need to we need to grasp. Um, But also, you mean you mentioned citizen science? I mean, these citizen science is wonderful uh in terms of both engaging people with uh the natural world around us and uh and also providing actual data that is that is applicable and, and useful uh there's no doubt about that but there is a there can be a, a dark side to it and we've seen that with the pollinator plan for instance the pollinator plan I think has been a huge success in uh raising awareness about uh pollinators mostly bees and uh, and the role of, let's say, you know, not cutting your grass and not being overly tidy uh, and all the rest of it. That's fantastic. But it ignores the role that invertebrate life plays, you know, in kind of putting pollinators up here, uh, you know, and saying that we need pollinators because they, you know, pollinate apple trees and strawberries. Um, it kind of demotes the role of ants and grasshoppers and you know uh, earwigs i don't know the the, the great you know uh, powerhouses of the invertebrate world uh, and also and i think more perniciously uh we see uh the pollinator plan being used by businesses and corporations um and basically helping them to greenwash their their, their images, their image. And this is a tricky one. I know for the people running the pollinator plan, because, you know, you want, you know, there's no harm in businesses getting on board, but, you know, we know we, we need a radical transformation in how we, how we do uh, business activities. And, you know, if you see a a meat plant or a petrol station participating in the pollinator plan, you really got to ask yourself, you know, is you know, is this really masking, is this anaesthetizing us against, you know, the, the problems we face, or is this addressing a problem, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's actually a, a kind of a, a concern that I come across a lot in my in my interest in kind of community development and social movement. Kind of on the one hand, the sort of essential kind of contribution that people's voices and activities make towards kind of Bringing about change, often incrementally, but on the other hand, how that kind of energy can be used to sort of mask and to cover up—it can be romanticized. It can be, you know, it can be, you know, used for all kinds of nefarious purposes as well. So there's there's always this tension, you know. And the the way that I can imagine that something like citizen science effort could be harnessed to, you know, all kinds of corporate interests because it suits, you know, it, it suits them to do that. Um, And I think running through that, that, that discussion is a sort of, and I think you're very careful about this in the book, and I imagine it's quite a tension for you writing it, that you are, you do acknowledge, I suppose, that there are economic arguments for protecting and nurturing nature in the book, you know what I mean? And you do point out that, you know, potentially, you know, biodiversity can generate economic value. But on the other hand, I think you're absolutely rejecting that that becomes the basis on which, you know, you know like, you know, biodiversity matters, that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of like saying that it matters because it is essential, you know, you know for, you know, the survival of the planet, you know, you know for the sustainability of, of life in any kind of shape that we might know it in. But how difficult for you as a kind of a writer and activist is there between, and I think this maybe kind of, you know, also feeds into your, your role as a campaigner, knowing that biodiversity is inherently good. OK, that's the kind of, you know, that's the position. But having to sort of like win people over, you know, and having to adopt other kind of arguments in order to convince them that it matters and, it, and it's in their interest.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a very hard thing to do um, because uh, I remember, uh, you know, when I started getting into this game, um, you know, we were told, you know, you're just being so negative all the time, you know, pointing out these problems is a turnoff. Uh, And nobody, nobody wants to hear it really, you know, when you're disempowering people, people are much more likely to take action if you give them a positive story. Now we know that doesn't work either because, you know, you can just look at the the history of, um, uh, you know, beautiful TV programs, wildlife programs on telly that people devour, absolutely love them. But you come away feeling, you know, this is great. The world is in ship shape. You know, we don't we don't need to do anything. Um, so you have to, you know, I mean, I'm, at the end of the day, I mean, I I knew writing Whittled Away that this is this is a dark story. This is this is bad news. And, you know, some people will turn away from it. On the one hand, I, I am careful not to be fatalistic. And I hope in the book, um and other work that I've done that, you know, we've emphasized that there are there are solutions that we can there basically decisions we can make to try to undo this, but, you know, we can't we can't be looking away from the horrendous destruction that is that is going on all the time, every single day. And believe me, I mean, i because I'm kind of knee deep in it, and I know from talking to my colleagues in this area, it's very hard to stay engaged because you're thinking, Jesus, I mean, it's you know, we're not even we're not even on top of recognizing the problem at the moment. Uh, I mean, I read this morning that there's a report in The Guardian that the Amazon scientists believe the Amazon may have gone over a tipping point that basically the Amazon can't be saved. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I mean, how do you how do you communicate that to people? Uh You know, it's such a it's, it's so consequential. Um, you don't want people feeling, oh, that's the end of it. We're bunched, you know. I'll just, uh, I'll just, you know, you know, use it as another excuse not to engage with this with this problem. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you know, personally, I'm fighting the fatalism all the time. But but, you know, I, I on the other hand, I, you know, I'm kind of having an internal dialogue, is what I'm saying, much more than that. I'm having a a dialogue with with let's say followers of the Irish Wildlife Trust. Um, but I mean, we're not, we're not dealing with it. And, um, it can get hard, uh, saying the same things over and over again. Like, I mean, and I'm not, not just talking about me. I'm talking about the, the movement has been saying the same thing now for nearly 50 years. It's 30 years since the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, where the world leaders got together and said, you know, we're gonna, ha- we're gonna la- look after this. We're gonna handle it. And things have spiraled, uh, into the abyss since then so um so yeah so it, it is it's it's an ongoing um uh, debate I have with myself as well as with my colleagues about how to communicate what needs to be done
1: yeah yeah I, I can I can imagine and I can imagine like in within activism there is the kind of the urgency and the kind of pessimism it was a pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will that Gramsci talked about but I think it's what you're describing it really it resonates with that idea um uh, maybe we we'll talk before we finish about a little bit about wildlife and wilding. And I suppose one side of that is that um in the book, you talk about how there are very few politicians in Ireland. There are some maybe, but most not, who speak up for wildlife. And in fact, an awful lot of the traffic actually works the other way. So, you know. Every now and again, we hear some other scandal or moral panic, inv- you know, involving, you know, a particular animal. So a badger or a pine marten or a pike or a seagull is getting it in the neck because they've gotten in the way of progress or they're, you know, you know, messing around and upsetting tourists or various, you know, crimes that they're, they're supposed to have committed. Um, and so there is this sort of idea that like wildlife are fine so long as they stay in their lane, basically, and they don't interrupt anything that's, um, kind of like economically viable. And I think this is part of where the tension between environmentalists and farming in particular can become very acute. Do you know know, that there is a kind of a pitting together, a pitting, like you talked about a little bit in relation to turf cutting, because there's a lot of overlap between small rural communities and turf cutting, obviously. And again, in relation to wildlife. I mean, people in rural areas kind of brush up against, you know, you know wild critters and, you know, in very particular kind of ways. And there is this relentless, I think, pitting of one side against the other that the never the twain can meet. And you see it again in the context of the debate about climate change and the inverted hummus national herd and all of these kind of ideas. And I suppose, I suppose, Can you see how we can begin to move beyond that kind of situation of this pitting of of communities and environmentalists against each other? Um, I think maybe what you talked about in relation to the burden is suggestive of some possibilities, but it's a real problem, I think. It is really a problem. And because so much of the debate during the summer around climate change was colonized by this idea. On the one hand, you've got the environment, and on the other hand, you've got the rural, the rural lobby as a singular entity.
2: Yes, it's a, it's a very important uh, debate and uh, hasn't been helped by the media approach to it, which generally devotes very little time. So, you, you know, you might have tuned into some of these radio debates uh, and you have an environmentalist and you have a farmer and they're having to go at each other. And of course, the media thrives on this, so this, this that that has kind of uh, uh, really you know uh, done well out of <laughs> out of that uh, pitting against as you uh, as you put it uh, I mean as an NGO, as somebody who works in the policy sector, our message has always been that it is the job of the state and the government uniquely to implement state policy, so at the moment. Uh, we mentioned it a couple of times in this conversation already, you know, we have laws in place, we have policies in place to uh, protect species, habitats, water quality, you know, environmental impact of projects, all of these things. Uh, But also at the same time, we have economic plans about expansion uh, and growth uh, in the economic sphere. So typically uh you know the farmer, in particular, because uh farming is such a dominant debate because uh, so much of Ireland is farmland uh so farmers are squeezed because they're hearing messages from me uh that and they feel they feel like i like I might be personally attacking their practices of their their way of life. Uh, and at the same time, the entire economic juggernaut, whether that comes from Board Beer and Origin Green and government policies and Chagas research is driving them towards producing more, getting more out of less, draining your land, Using more fertilisers, maybe not so much this year with the with the uh, with the crisis on, on various fronts, but up until very recently, it has all been about drain your land, uh, get a bigger shed, get you know get in more animals, uh, use this spray, use that spray, you know, um, to just to drive that growth in export uh, uh, output. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed. I mean, even. Uh, you know, what What startled me about the debate over the summer was that farmers obviously weren't happy with the outcome. And very quickly, they were saying, well, where is the plan for us to uh, to reduce our emissions by 25 percent? And, you know, from my point of view, look, there's a heap of plans that, uh, that the government and the industry have developed. Uh, but they're not about reducing emissions. They're about driving economic growth. And even the most recent one, which came out last year, um, said that um, Ireland is going to be a world leader in sustainable food production. That was, that's their term. Yet at the same time we're going to grow, we're going to continue growing exports. Okay, maybe we won't grow them as much as we wanted to the last time, but that that mentality is still absolutely embedded in there. So how do we get out of that? I think, um, you know, ultimately there's a denialism in that in that narrative that we can continue growing and economic expansion, while protecting the environment, they are just at odds with with each other, so there's a job of work to do to accept that but i think if well, i mean i don't know whether that can be done or not i mean but but if it can be accepted, if we can say, look, we don't need to be growing. We don't need to be increasing beef mountains and, you know, dairy lakes and all the rest of it. Uh, we're already a rich, rich country. You know, we need to we need to ensure we need to have different indicators for, for welfare and uh, prosperity than just growth. Um, and if we can do that and accept that there are boundaries to the natural world, to the pollution, to extinction, uh, that we can't just grow our way out of. Um then you can have a discussion with people about how we can, you know, manage different land uses while while meeting those targets. But I mean, while we have plans that that still just, you know, have have fantasies of growth, um, where we're just not there at the moment, uh, and 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 it's, unfo- it's it's very unfortunate because you know while the farmer and the environmentalist are are appearing as boxers in a ring, the supermarkets, the uh, the co ops, the people making a lot of money out of this system are sitting back. Enjoying a beer and the popcorn and basically getting a free ride because I have never seen or heard an interview where, let's say, somebody from uh, the, the Department of Agriculture is hauled in to say, you know, why are you promoting growth while at the same time farmers are coming under pressure to meet emissions targets and pollution targets and so on?
1: Yeah, where's the discussion about agribusiness, for example, and mm-hmm. big corporations? Absolutely, and I think we are very wedded to a notion of like exponential growth. Do you mean you know, and that you know, it lifts all boats eventually, and, and and all that kind of mythology that goes with that. Maybe we'll finish up by talking about rewilding because I I think you're you're quite keen to talk about it. Actually, I I get a sense from some of the work you've been doing with the Irish Wildlife Trust, um, and. I suppose I think I think the word is word is beginning to kind of enter into kind of everyday kind of parlance, where people are beginning to hear a little bit about it. Do you want to maybe explain how you understand rewilding, um, and maybe some of the different forms that it can take, and 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 why you think it's maybe something we really need to start thinking seriously about?
2: So um, I think rewilding is wonderful, and partly it's wonderful because. It uh it confronts the system uh, in a way that other uh conservation ideas haven't confronted in the past. And it also confronts individuals. It's uh, it's it's not just about uh confronting our, our system. In a nutshell, very simply, rewilding is about giving nature uh space and time uh to heal itself, to repair those uh the The damage basically that we have wrought on it, uh we know for instance that trees will 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 ha- quite happily plant and grow themselves uh if if we give them a bit of space uh but we have seen where where that happens that you know the reaction has been that that's wasteland and uh you know that 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 needs to be cleaned up uh so rewilding is a challenge to that mentality. Uh, which I think is really important. We need to be going there in terms of, you know, asking the question, where in Ireland do we have that is primarily for nature, where nature comes first? Now, I think, you know, I haven't found that place, but uh, maybe it exists, but certainly most of Ireland uh, does not fall into that category. And that's the sea as well as as well as the land. So rewilding is really important in challenging that. But the other thing is that re- rewilding is not, It's not a notional ideology. It's actually a very practical conservation tool. Um, If for instance, we want to expand our native forests, which today possibly only cover 1% of our land, which is miserably small. Um, If we want to grow them bigger, uh, how are we going to do that? Are we going to go out with Plastic tubes and saplings that have been reared in nurseries, and are we going to decide this tree is going to spend the next two hundred years of its life in this location? Uh, because that, that that approach, while while you know there is some use to it, it 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 doesn't work in creating forests. Forests are not about trees; they're about you know very complex ecosystems that tend to have hundreds of species and hundreds of interactions. And much better would be saying. Okay, the forest, this is where we want the forest to be. And we're going to allow that forest to grow itself. Maybe it will require some tree planting. But basically we're going to allow all those connections to knit themselves together. The the insects, the soil microbes, the fungi, the lichens, the mosses. uh, Not just the trees. And we're going to allow those trees to grow themselves. And when they fall over, we're not going to go in and clean them up. We're going to allow that dead tree to become home for other animals and other creatures and and therefore restoring the uh, the essential ecosystem and this is really practical because natural ecosystems that are regulating themselves store an awful lot of carbon, they regulate water as it flows off land, Uh, they provide home to different species they're very practical. They're a very practical benefit, um, and so rewilding, I think, uh, allows us to do that. And so, that, that they're basically my two arguments: is the ethical one, but also very much the uh, the practical one.
1: Excellent, yeah. And I suppose another dimension of that is you've talked a little bit about in the book is the possibility of reintroduction of species that you know aren't around anymore. For example, so one of them would be wolves, is one of the the, the species that you you mention, um, and that might. You know get people's you know <laughs> somewhat alarmed or open their eyes look askance at that but again there's a there's a kind of a logic and there's a certain kind of kind of like way of thinking through this where it where it begins to make sense do you do you mind explaining that somewhat
2: yeah so I, th- I think one of the one of the biggest problems we have in Ireland is uh, a total lowering of ambition. And maybe this comes back to maybe our pollinator plan that, you know, people might feel that, you know, if we can just rewild the road verges, uh, that would be, that would be enough. But it, it, it isn't. And, um, and restoring large uh, areas of native ecosystems is crucial for the reasons that I, that I just outlined. And as humans, we can't go down through the list and say, OK, we're happy for that little harmless bird to come back or we're happy for, you know, this fungus to come back. But, but we're not we're not going to allow wolves to come back or predators to come back uh, because because it's some kind of a challenge to how we think about things. So you mentioned that like, people do sit up when you talk about wolves. And I think that's a good thing. We should be sitting up. God, we, we have enough reasons to be sitting up and paying attention to this crisis. Uh, and We need to recognize what we've lost in Ireland or basically what we have destroyed in Ireland um, and wolves are a very quick way of getting people back to uh, Back to that. I mean, remember wolves were around uh, in the seventeen hundreds. Wolves and farming existed in Ireland side by side for five thousand years. Um, that I'm not saying that was a, a, a you know a happy you know romanticized children's fairy story kind of existence. But there were, but we see it in countries like Spain and Italy today, and France and Germany, where there is a coexistence. Sometimes it's uneasy. Uh, but again, the government is there to help a lot of the times the scientists are there to help uh, helping farmers adapt and take uh, measures to protect their livestock but fundamentally, the question is about coexistence and it it challenges our our place in the in the natural world our place in the ecosystem can we can we Develop our society in a way that coexists with other plants and animals. Because remember, it's not just wolves that we can't live with at the moment. I mean, we can't live with whole lists of species at the moment because they because protecting them would be would be too challenging from an our, 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 our economic point of view. Um, so I, I I think wolves are a very good way, obviously, you, you know, we're, we're ingrained with all kinds of stories uh, in, the, in the media, Little Red Riding Hood and so on. But really it comes down to this fundamental ethical question, in my view. It's not a scientific one. It's an ethical. Can we find a way to live with creatures like wolves, like natural ecosystems, whereby it's not going to be fun and games all the time, but instead of just, you know, Shooting and poisoning things out of existence. Can we find ways uh, to accommodate these other creatures and find our own place in the in the in the natural world? And to be honest, I think this is the question if humanity is to survive the century that we're in at the moment.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I've been having a conversation about this, with a friend of mine and and we were talking about like this idea of you know apex predators, and he was sort of saying, well, he thinks it's a great idea, but. If you do that, then and they're sort of killing the deer, doesn't that make life really stressful for the deer? Do you know what I mean like so? It's like having a real Bambi moment. But I think that what's maybe what you're saying is, look, we just have to think about this in a different kind of way. Do you know what I mean you know? And we've we've kind of like we kind of fall in love with the specific species, but we've re- we're kind of refusing to recognize the interrelationship between the whole and the totality. I, I, maybe that's I'm not saying that correctly, but I think maybe that's that's kind of what you're pointing to there. You know.
2: Yes and 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 even within uh the environmentalist world within the ecologists that have let's say trained and worked in Ireland over the last 20 30 years um we have kind of been led to believe that Ireland is outside the rules of ecology that's you know wild natural ecosystems regulating themselves, that's something for America. It's something for the plains of Africa. Um, It's not something for us because we have completely domesticated our island. You know, we have a farming system which might be uh, a good argument if we had clean rivers and healthy peatlands and you know healthy populations of pollinators, but we don't. Uh, we 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 even without wolves, we have completely destroyed any kind of natural vestige uh, in our in our landscape. Um, so I think we do have to reconnect with uh, with the value of uh, of ecology in the very original sense of the word and, uh, you know, and the importance of allowing plants and animals of all kinds to evolve and to develop uh, over time and space. Um, that's possibly quite you know, profound, but it, it, is, uh, it is where we need to go, I think, in the debate.
1: I think it's a really useful encapsulation, actually, of, of what it's about. And then I suppose maybe we'll just finish up with this last question. Um I mean, as I said already at the start, it's been five years since the book was published. I suppose the question is probably that that begs to be asked. Do you think things have gotten better or worse in those five years? Do you mean and by asking that question of I you, mean, i'm not I'm not putting the responsibility on you or your book to have someone sorted it out. But like, have there been any improvements we're talking about, or have has the kind of the worst case been kind of further realized?
2: Uh, there's no doubt that the debate has changed in the last 5 years uh there's no doubt that the new government that uh uh we've had for the past 2 years has uh has uh, focused on biodiversity in particular in a way that I don't think any government before it has um and it's not just that the government uh is uh, is changed we're seeing politicians from different parties you know speaking out about biodiversity i tuned into a a rock this committee debate before the summer and i remember being really impressed at the standard of the debate you know the the attendees were asked intelligent questions uh you know it was a good debate now on the ground nothing has changed uh in the last five years there have been some projects that have started uh, i don't want to say nothing is happening on the ground but we're we're not getting a handle on the scale of the crisis and the speed with which we need to react. And, you know, we've talked about farming and fishing in particular. They are the two areas that really we need to be we need to be looking at. Um, You know, uh, I think things are happening. Uh, there is there's new policies on agriculture that are coming into force next year on uh, forests that are going to come into play. Next year, um, I as I say, I'm, I really I don't want to be fatalistic about it. These things, a lot hangs in the balance. I think in the next few years. I mean, I think if anybody's listening today, wondering, you know, should I be hopeful or should I be uh, despairing? I think you should be neither. You should be active, and. Uh, the level of activity that you know is appropriate to you i mean only you can can decide that but there's certainly lots that regular people can do you know if you if you if you really you know are are trying to get a handle on the scale of this crisis you know don't be paralyzed by it and, and i've always said one of the simplest things you can do is contact your local politician and, and tell them. You don't have to have the answers, you can just tell them this is really important to me and I want to know what you're doing about uh, this uh, crisis because a lot of the politicians I speak to will tell me, look nobody is ringing my office to tell me they're worried about f- freshwater pearl mussels or the, the plight of the Atlantic salmon. They are ringing me about houses and you know, you know other, other issues that are that are also very important. But if politicians don't feel that they're going to be rewarded for being bold uh and taking risks for the the environment uh then you know there's not much in it for them you know we have to give them something uh that they can that they can see there's a reward in it for me and not just be be punishing them for making bad decisions so i think that's really important and that really puts us uh center stage in in our political dealings
1: Absolutely. And I think we'll finish on that point. But it certainly strikes me that, you know, a lot of the social changes that have occurred in Ireland over the last number of years, it's actually been led from from public opinion, you know, know, where politicians were often slow and reluctant to get on board, but because they could sense a wave of interest and and, and concern about them, then it became kind of politically astute to, 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 to join and board that train. Patrick, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk with you. And it's been so interesting. And as I said, we've only really been able to touch on a fraction of what's covered in the book. So, you know, people buy the book, read the book and share the book and discuss what's in it, because it's really, really crucial stuff in terms of the survival of biodiversity. Um, Thanks again for joining me. And I hope you enjoyed it too.